I thought perhaps it would be interesting to some of you to know that it was a few years after the death of the men that I was sitting one day in a little thatched roofed house with Gikita, the oldest man in the Alka tribe, who was then about 42 years old. And he was the one who had thrown the first spear. And he told me on a tape recorder everything that had happened on that afternoon of January the 8th, 1956, with very vivid descriptions, onomatopoetic words. He went into very vivid detail as to exactly what happened that afternoon. And then when he had finished his story, he turned and looked at the picture of my husband, Jim Elliott, that was sitting on top of a stack of boxes that I used for a, for a bookcase. And he said, so that's your husband, Jim, is it? And I said, yes. And he said, well, he's smiling at us, isn't he? And I said, yes. He said, well, if we'd known him the way we know you, he'd be sitting here smiling with, with us today. But we didn't know. We thought he was going to eat us. So that was the motivation. Not bloodthirst, not hatred, but fear. Simply fear. And since then, I can see how mysterious are God's ways, how inscrutable, as that great hymn says, God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea. Ever seen any footsteps in the sea? And rides upon the storm. Another verse of that hymn says, Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. It's one thing for us to look at all the results all over the world, the lives that have been influenced and deeply changed by the testimony of those five men. But to me, that is not nearly an adequate answer, not even a particle of all that God had in his purposes. And of course, the fact is, it's none of our business what God is up to. He's constantly saying to you and me, will you trust me? Will you love me? Will you praise me? Will you do what I say? I'm very thankful for the theme that has been chosen for this conference for such a time as this. It was God's choice to put you and me in exactly the point in history in which he has placed us. Now, as it's very obvious, I'm an old lady, and there are a whole lot of young ladies here tonight, and people of all ages. Well, it was not my idea to be born in 1926. It was God's idea. And so it is with joy and gladness that I accept the fact that I am old. I'm not one of those people that says, well, we're all getting older. Well, we've been doing that ever since we were born, haven't we? Um, some of us have already gotten old. So I'm thankful for that. And I see it as another segment of the will of God in my life. 
I have three titles <clears throat> for my talks. This evening's talk is A Royal Position. There are three things that characterize a godly woman, a royal position, a measured portion, and a simplified life. Those are among the things which characterize a godly woman, a joyful woman. There are many others, of course, that we could think of, but those are the three which fit very neatly under this overall theme for such a time as this. And you know that that, that verse, those words come from a verse in the book of Esther, that wonderful story, beautiful story, the only book in the Bible in which God's name is never mentioned, but God stands behind every verse. And I think of the sovereign God who put each person in that story in a particular position which fit exactly into his sovereign plan. King Xerxes, Xerxes was the ruler of 127 provinces from India to the Upper Nile region, quite a stretch. So there's the who. The when of this story was the third year of his reign. The what was a banquet. He had been displaying his splendors for 180 days to various prominent people and then gave a feast which lasted seven days. The where was in the enclosed garden of the royal palace where there was unlimited drinking and during which Queen Vashti gave a banquet for the women. The king, who was slightly in his cups, as we might say, or to be more crude, perhaps sloshed, gave the command for his wife to appear because she was a very beautiful woman. He wanted to show her off. And as you've read the story, you know that Queen Vashti defied the king. She was not a submissive wife, and she did not come. And so she was banished from then on from his presence because she was setting a very bad example for all the women of the realm. They would then be encouraged and even validated in disobeying their husbands. And so then it was that there was a man in that kingdom named Mordecai who had been exiled from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar. And he was related to this beautiful woman, Esther, who pleased the king and became the queen. One of the characteristics of Esther, which I think is a very, very rare characteristic for us women, she asked for nothing. I wonder how many of us could characterize ourselves as contented women who have everything that we'd ever want. When the king asked what she would like, she asked for nothing. She was contented. The story reveals that she was a very pleasant person as well as being beautiful. She was obedient to Mordecai who had become like a father to her and became her protector. And when Haman's plot was revealed, Mordecai's directions were obeyed by Esther. And in <clears throat> Esther chapter 4, verse, seven, verse 14, we have those words from Mordecai. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, 
You alone of all the Jews will escape, for if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Mordecai's faith envisioned that possibility that she had come to royal position for such a time as this to save her people. He couldn't be sure, he said, who knows. But that was a possibility, and it was the shred of hope that they hung on to. Esther was a woman not only of submissiveness and obedience and pleasant personality and contentment, but she was a woman of courage. And Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. That, of course, was the attitude of the five men whose story you've just seen dramatized. They knew very well what the possibilities were. We knew the reputation of these Indians. We knew that nobody had ever gone in there and come out alive. Lots of people had gone in looking for oil and rubber and gold. But it was as simple as Nate's statement that Christ had commanded that we go into all the world and preach the gospel. And we knew the history of Christian missions. I was raised on missionary books and missionary slides and missionary lectures and missionary guests in our home. My parents were missionaries. We read endless missionary stories. So there was nothing unusual or singular about a missionary's losing his life in the servant's service of the Lord. These men were expendable. And although it's very unlikely that God is going to call you or me to do anything very heroic, each of us has come to the kingdom for such a time as this. It was not our choice that put us on this earth at the moment when we were born. That was the sovereignty of God. And the position in which God has put each one of us is exactly designed, precisely arranged for the accomplishment of his high and holy purposes. And that means the circumstances in which we find ourselves, just as it was for Esther and Mordecai and Haman and Xerxes and all the rest of them. Think of the people involved in this story of Esther, the timing, the events, and the location. Now, who is in charge of the people and the timing and the events and the location of your life. The very same Lord, that sovereign Lord who's got the whole world where? In his hands. He's got you and me, sister and brother, in his hands. And he's got the timing and the people and the location and the events in his hands. I have a tiny little slip of paper pasted up over my typewriter it says, events are his bright servants. 
And the older I get, the more clearly that is revealed to me. Everything that happens fits into a pattern for good to them that love God. Now, that's not Elizabeth Elliot talking. That's the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans 8, 28. All things work together for good. Another translation says, everything that happens fits into a pattern for good to them that love God. And I want to encourage you tonight to look at your own circumstances. And I'm going to use a Latin phrase. It's not going to hurt you to learn a Latin phrase if you don't already know it. Inconspectu dei. I just came across this a couple of years ago in a book, and I've just been thinking of it and trying to think in those terms. It means in the view of God, in the presence of God, in the way God looks at things, in conspectu, and it's spelled exactly the way it sounds. The last letter is U. Dei means God, in the view of God, D-E-I. And the reason that I give you the Latin phrase is just because it's concise and it sticks in your mind, I think. It really does. In the view of God, in the perspective of God, I look at the people in my life, the timing, the events, the location, and these, to my great blessing, constitute the sphere or the royal position in which I have been divinely positioned or placed I have been set down here. I have been put here. I am meant to stay here to do his bidding. If I perish, I perish. What's the difference? It really doesn't make any difference whether we live or die, does it, as far as God is concerned, so long as, and this is a tremendous difference, we live or die in his will. A young woman came to me and told me that she believed that God was calling her to the mission field, but she had a major barrier. She said her parents were not Christians, and they were absolutely and categorically opposed to her going to the foreign mission field. It scared them to death. They thought she was out of her tree. They did everything they could to dissuade her from this foolish decision. And one of their greatest arguments, which they felt was probably the most convincing, was, what if you die over there? And she astonished them by saying, well, I will die. Well, that wasn't much comfort. They said, what do you mean? Well, she said, I'm going to die someplace, sometime. What's the difference whether I die there or here, except the difference that it makes to me and to God? And the only difference it makes to me, whether I die here or there, is whether it's in the will of God. And I believe it's the will of God for me to go to the mission field. And so if I die there, fine. If God doesn't want me to die there, that's his business. But can you look at your own circumstances in conspectu dei? In the, in the view of God, in his perspective, in his presence. Maybe that's the simplest way for you to look at it. Just think of God arranging all of this, and you as an individual standing there in the place where he has put you, this royal position, and then try to see it as he looks at it. See your position as always in his hand, under his eye, and covered by his love. 
Now, I don't know anyone in this room well at all. I know Libby a little bit. But I don't know your problems. I don't know your circumstances. I don't know the timing and the people and the location and all the rest of it. But I do know that whatever your situation is, it is always in his hand, always under his eye, and always covered by his love. And I can just imagine that about 69 of you are sitting there thinking, I don't see how in the world the situation I'm in can possibly be covered by his love. Why would God's love assign me to a position like this? And he says, trust me. Trust me. I do know what I'm doing. Believe me, I am working on the pattern. And someday, you will understand it. The Bible says that I am loved with an everlasting love. And underneath are the everlasting arms. And everlasting means everlasting. It will last forever. My circumstances do not remove me from those arms. My worst fears coming true do not put me at a different position than in his everlasting arms, covered by his everlasting love. So my circumstances are precisely designed to enable me to do the will of God. And I want to encourage you by saying that it is always possible to do the will of God. It is always possible to do the will of God. No human being, no devil, nothing in earth or heaven or hell can prevent you from doing the will of God except your own will. If you will to do his will, you can do it because he will help you. One of the verses of my life is Isaiah 50, verse 7. The Lord God will help me. Therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint. And I know that I shall not be ashamed. He will help you. It's always possible to do the will of God. No one is ever prevented from doing the will of God because of health or circumstances or a miserable husband or an impossible boss or lack of gifts. God gives us exactly the gifts which are designed to accomplish his purposes. It's only my will. Esther aligned her will with the will of Mordecai, for one thing, because she was under his authority, and with the will of God. And it made no difference to her personally whether she perished or didn't. It made great, great difference as far as her feelings go. She wanted to save her people, but she was willing to put her life on the line. So it's not going to be heroics that God gives us. It's the willingness to put our lives at his disposal, to be expendable for God, to be broken bread and poured out wine, 
Now, how can I do this? Let's think about Christ in me. I see that there are a number of people with notebooks and pens busily going, so let me help you with your outline here. Point one was circumstances, and point two is Christ within me, Christ around me, Christ behind me, Christ before me, Christ in me. In one of George MacDonald's novels, he has a dialogue between two men, and the one man is very troubled and greatly weighed down with care, and his friend says something like this, the care that is filling your mind today is sapping your strength. It is diverting your energies from doing the one thing that God wants you to do, the one thing required of you. And his friend says, there is nothing required of me at this moment. And the other man says, yes, there is. His friend replies, pray, what is that? The greatest thing that can be required of any man. And what is that? Trust in the living God. Oh, but I do trust him in affairs of the spirit. Ah, says his friend, everything is an affair of the spirit. I remember coming across that. It was like a brilliant light went on in my mind. This was many, many years ago, and I can remember copying it down on a little slip of paper. And one day when my father was expressing some of his worries, I gave him that little slip of paper. My father and my mother both were born worriers. It goes without saying, all of us were born worriers. We came from a long line of champions on both sides. But I saw the grace of God working in the lives of both of my parents, and I certainly trust that the grace of God is at work in me in delivering me from worry and anxiety. And my father took that little slip of paper and he put it in his wallet and he kept it until he died. And he told me that he often took it out and looked at it. Everything is an affair of the spirit. So every single thing that I am concerned with, everything that I do, everything that touches me, all the events, all the circumstances of my life, the people, the timing, and everything else, is it affects me, but in me lives Christ. Christ liveth in me. Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. It's not I, but Christ. It's just as though even the Apostle Paul, with that brilliant incandescent intellect, was at a loss to explain this mystery. He doesn't explain it. He simply states it and goes back and forth. I am crucified. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I live, I live by the faith of the Son of God. It is a mystery. And don't please come and ask me afterwards, but how can I understand this Christ in me concept? I don't understand it. 
But that is my hope of glory, Christ in me, the hope of glory. And so it is the living reality of Jesus that enables me to live for his glory. He resides in me. He lives in me. He rules my life. Now I have to tell you, you're not looking at a woman whose life has been brought totally under the control of Christ. Every day there are new tests. Every day there are new temptations. Every day there are areas which God reveals to me which have to be surrendered. Every day there is a new opportunity for submission to the will of God. And I will be extremely frank with you and say that for me, I don't think a day goes by when I have to struggle with the question about which Elizabeth Rice Hanford wrote a book. Me? Obey him? Now, how many of you have read Elizabeth Hanford's book? May I see your hands? Wonderful. Now, put up the hands of you that have not read that book, who are married. Okay, you don't have to, oh, thank you. There were a whole lot of hands that went up. How many of you have husbands and you have not read that book? Quite a few. Well, you're probably not nearly as recalcitrant as I am. You're probably not nearly as determined that I'm going to do my own thing and nobody's going to tell me what to do. But I know what God tells me as a wife. You wives, says Paul in Ephesians, submit yourselves to your husbands. Now may I see the hands of you wives who were born submissive. (laughs) And I'll tell you the truth, when I saw in a magazine years ago that Elizabeth Hanford had written a book called Me, Obey Him, I thought, hmm, I know that man she married, not very well, but I knew Wally. We used to call him Wally then. I guess that would be very disrespectful now. He was Walt Hanford. But I thought, Elizabeth is a powerful woman. I wonder if she's ever had to struggle submitting to Walter Hanford. Well, I don't think she would have written that book if she didn't know something about that struggle. And I just want to say that I'm very thankful for the light that it gave to me. I'm ashamed to say I didn't read it till about two years ago. But I've been reading it again and again ever since. (laughs) And it's one of the areas of obedience. If Christ is going to be totally revealed in me and in control of my life, I must be obedient. And that brings me to my third point, but we're not there yet, so I'm jumping the gun a bit. Christ in me, the hope of glory. I hope that he is changing me, transfiguring me, transforming me into that image day by day. And when I think I've learned it, then there's another corner that is revealed to me, another little place where I have not submitted. And you are not looking at a woman who was born submissive or with a gentle and quiet spirit.
It doesn't come naturally. I really don't believe it comes naturally to any of us women because it began way back in the Garden of Eden when Eve decided she was going to do her own thing. She was going to upgrade her lifestyle. <laughs> and she was taking the attitude, which is so natural to most of us, nobody is going to tell me what to do. I am my own person. It is my life and it is my body. And the world is telling us this insistently and shrilly and inescapably every day, coming at us, just bombarding us with this bilge, this garbage, this nonsense. It's your life, it's your body, you can do anything you want with it. My Bible says, you are not your own, you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. You've only got one one body in which to glorify him, and one life. And if we don't learn to be crucified with Christ here in this life, in these circumstances, in this time, with all the temptations and struggles and problems that God has allowed to happen in our lives, we're not going to have another chance. This is the place where the test comes. This is the royal position assigned by the King of Kings, and he knows every one of us through and through. And it was his wisdom and his love that placed us exactly where we are. The power rightly to occupy my royal position, my only qualification is Christ himself. I cannot rightly occupy my royal position in Christ unless Christ is in me. Now, for some of you, this may be utterly incomprehensible. You may be sitting there thinking, what on earth is she talking about? He'll show you if you just open your heart to him. He wants to come in, not to invade our lives, not to ruin our fun, not to be leaning over the parapets of heaven and finding somebody that's having a good time so we can say, cut it out. To give us joy, love, joy, peace, commodities which are extremely scarce in today's world, aren't they? We were in Hungary last week. And as we looked at those faces, I said to Lars, it's, it's not easy to see a peaceful face or even just a blank face. There just seemed to be deep anger, sorrow. And then yesterday we were in New York City. It was the same story. Very, very rare, isn't it, to see a peaceful face, a face filled with joy or love or hope. But that comes from Christ living in us. Christ liveth in me. And the life which I live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. It's Christ in me, his life, his work in me, in my relationships, in my time. My father was a great stickler for promptness, 
punctuality. He said, if you're late, you are stealing another person's most precious commodity. Is there anybody here that feels as though you have enough time to do all the things that you want to do or that you feel that you ought to do even? God has given us exactly the measure which is necessary to do his will. Christ at work in the timing of my life, in the events of my life, in the location of my life, in my weakness. Paul had to have the experience of weakness, that thorn in his flesh, in order to learn that Christ's strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, he said, will I glory in my infirmities. Rejoice in this weakness in order that the power of Christ may rest upon me. That the power of Christ may rest upon me. And if you will stop and think about the people who have been the deepest influence in your spiritual life, I think that we could practically guarantee that in every single case, they are people who have suffered. People with weaknesses. People who have known failure. People who have been through horrible experiences that you and I can't even imagine. And very likely things that they don't talk about. But you would find, if you delved a little bit, that those who suffer most have most to give. For the power of Christ is made perfect in weakness. The power of Christ rests upon that one who accepts the thorn, accepts the weakness. Now, all of these things lead to faith and obedience. The third thing that you can put down in your notebook. And let me read from 1 Peter 2, verse 9. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Isn't that wonderful or what? You, Paul is writing to, Peter is writing to exiles, people who have suffered, people who are um, displaced, relocated, have been through all the agonies of what it means to be exiled, scattered, torn away from everything that had been familiar to them. They'd lost so much. And he writes this letter of wonderful encouragement and says, you are a chosen people. Would God treat chosen people like that? Yes, he would. In order to teach them where their strength must lie a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. For what? So that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Now, how do I declare his praises? Do I go out and preach a sermon? Do I go to a foreign mission field, to some jungle, some heroic place? He might call you to that, but not tonight. He's not going to call you to that tonight or probably tomorrow. He's not going to send you there, at least. He might call you. I can't say he won't. 
But just let me read a little quotation here from an old writer from the 18th century. Just a little sample of what it means to declare, let me get those words exactly, declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness. Now, of course, praising him is, takes many forms. We've been singing praises to him tonight. Prayer is another form. But declaring his praises should be a moment-by-moment, hour-by-hour, day-by-day activity, a habit of ours. What do you do in life? Listen to what this writer says. Set yourself steadfastly to those duties which have the least attractive exterior. It matters not whether God's holy will be fulfilled in great or small matters. Be patient with yourself and your own failings. Never be in a hurry. And do not yield to longings after that which is impossible. And there's a word for us women. I get lots of mail. So much of it is full of unfulfilled longings. And my heart goes out to the writers of those letters because it's so obvious in so many that they don't know that in acceptance lies peace. In acceptance of God's no to that longing. In receiving with thanksgiving what we do have rather than complaining about what we don't have and spending our whole lives wishing away things which God has assigned to us. So I love this. Do not yield to longings after that which is impossible. My dear sister, he says, go on steadily and quietly. If our dear Lord means you to run, he will strengthen your heart. Always begin by doing that which costs the most, unless the easier duty is a pressing one. Examine, classify, and determine at night the work of the morrow. Arrange things in the order of their importance and act accordingly. That's very down-to-earth, very practical advice. But we must learn in the small ways, the hidden ways that nobody else sees to declare his praise through faith and obedience. We can't see how our circumstances fit into the plan of God. I was just reading some of the mail today as we were flying from Boston to Atlanta. And one of the letters was from a lady who told me a terrible story of her husband's having had his truck demolished by a big semi and her husband had weeks and weeks in the hospital and many broken bones and all sorts of internal injuries. And she asked me the question that comes in every mail. I don't see how God could possibly have had anything to do with this. How can this fit into a pattern for good? How could this possibly be Romans 8.28? Everything that happens fits into a pattern for good. But what can I tell her? Do you think I can write back and say, I can tell you exactly how it fits? I don't know how it fits. I only know that it fits. And that's what we have to remember. 
Who's in charge? Who's got the whole world in his hands? Who was working through Esther? Who put her in that royal position? Who gave her the strength, the grace, the courage to do what Esther had to do at that particular moment in history? The Lord who loves you. The Lord who allowed that to happen to your husband. The Lord who allowed five men to be speared to death. Nine children to be fatherless. Hundreds of Indians to be without the missionary that had been there before. God moves according to a tremendous, incomprehensible, invisible pattern, which someday you and I will see. Who knows but what you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Will you trust him? Will you do what he says? You are a royal priesthood. A holy nation. He is continually with us behind every event in the heart of every believer in the core of collective faith, his church. He is everywhere as power, guidance, union. He is here in this inner life. Christ is with us even unto the end of the world. The spiritual man, the spiritual woman, inhabits a different sphere. We live in a visible world, a tangible world. But everything that happens here is interpreted in terms of an invisible world and an intangible world. We need not know the answers to all our questions. We need simply to trust him. Will you do that? tonight.